Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully and the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening today is the man behind the phenomenally successful Jamie Johnson series of books as well as the thriller Unstoppable which comes by the way highly recommended by none other than Marcus Rashford amongst many others. He is Dan Friedman. Welcome to the podcast Dan. Thanks Helen good to be here. Lovely to have you joining us. Now Dan One of the things I always like to ask guests on this podcast about is the kinds of books they like to read when they were the same age as most of our listeners. Now, being a good journalist, I've done a little bit of research, and I think actually you might have a particularly interesting answer to that question. Well, yeah, my reading journey was a varied one, um, (laughs) and it was a bit up and down in the sense that when I was young, I loved reading and it was a real treat. My mum used to take me to the library on a weekend and I can very much remember the hungry caterpillar and the tiger that came to tea. And I used to make my mum read them to me over and over and again until I could know them off by heart. But then something happened at school and I think reading became the victim of almost like a psychological battle between me and teachers. My sense was that (laughs) everyone was trying to make me read and I was and remain quite stubborn. And so the fact that I felt as though I was being pressured to do something took away that enjoyment for a while. And even it went one step further, I definitely have a memory of being told, like if I was talking in class, being told to be quiet and go and read a book. So I even thought that books were possibly a punishment. So for quite a long time, I was not passionate about reading. And I think that's a real shame, but it's just the truthful answer. And then what happened was, I didn't realize it, but of course I was reading every day, but just different types of content to the ones that were being pushed into my hands in that I loved my football, as you might guess. And on the way into school every day, I'd pick up a newspaper and turn it to the football pages and I would devour every single word. I would be reading non-stop on the way into school, on the way home and believe it or not, it does count as proper reading. If you took a sentence (laughs) like this, which could come from a match report, let's say Marcus Rashford's rasping rocket of a shot arrowed through the air past the goalkeeper's despairing dive on through their flailing fingertips before ricocheting in off the underside of the quivering crossbar. That's good words. That's good description. (laughs) That's not a bad sentence, is it? Yeah. And I would instinctively and intuitively understand what these words meant. And so my vocabulary grew and I became able to express myself. And that was one of the stepping stones to rediscovering reading, which happened a little bit later on. So I do understand if I'm speaking in schools or speaking to my bosses, which is what I call the pupils, and they're not madly into reading. I get it. And I would never say you must read. I just talk a little bit about the reasons why I love reading these days, which perhaps we'll come on to. Absolutely. Yes. And it's not just the the language of the of the sports reporting that you were reading, but also I think the actual storytelling itself. I mean, being able to tell the whole dramatic arc of, of a football match in a few sentences, that's really skillful writing. 
Yeah, and another thing that we talk about in schools when I'm when I'm visiting is, did you know that often these match reports are posted or published within seconds of the final whistle going? Which means that effectively, because if you go on, let's say the BBC's website after a game, instantly you expect to see the match report there. So working backwards, that means, and I've sat in press boxes where this is happening, the reports are being written while the game is going on. So to come up with that kind of quality writing under that time pressure, day after day, match after match, week after week, season after season, it's an incredible catalogue that these journalists ultimately can look back on. And also, if you're if you're sat in a press box and there is a last minute winner, whilst all the fans are celebrating, you'll see the journalists with their heads in their hands, thinking, "Right, I've now got to re- <laughs> re- rework this whole match report within seconds." So, yeah, it is a really impressive discipline and difficult way of writing, but one that we rely on if we're football fans. Yes, and it's a specific kind of writing that you've seen from both sides, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about how your life as a published writer started out and developed? Sure. Well, firstly, at school, I would never in a million years have thought that I would have ended up writing books because in the sense that I I wasn't that confident with my reading, that meant that I wasn't that confident with my writing. I was always the kid. If we had to do some kind of creative writing at school, I would be the one. So I can't do it. I've got no ideas. I've got no imagination. I've got nothing to put down. I don't know what to do here. And Actually, my English teacher was very supportive, a bit like a good football coach and gave me a bit of confidence. But it was when I realized that writing could be about what you like and what you're interested in. So in my case, football, that took on a different element because then it made it practical. I know a lot of people at school, they're like, well, what what difference is this going to make in my life if I do well in this subject or if I read this book? And for me, it was like a light bulb moment when I understood that the journalists who write about football, they get paid to watch football every single day (laughs) and meet the best players and travel around the world. And I was like, what, that's an actual job where you can get paid to watch football? Suddenly, I then understood why writing and English was relevant in my life because I wanted to be good enough at it in order to be employed as a journalist so that I could travel around the world watching football. And so that's when the light went on and when I really tried to focus and ended up, as you said, becoming a football journalist. I worked with the English FA and I was the in-house journalist there and my job was to interview players working playing with the England team this is in the era of Beckham and Rooney and Gerrard and Lampard and I also used to write the FA Cup final program so I got to interview people like Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger, Cristiano Ronaldo twice the first time when he'd just come to the country and so I ended up being the person writing the match reports that I had used to read when I was younger and that that became you know, the, the first steps along the professional writing route. I did want to ask you something about this. You know how sometimes people say, oh, I, I really, really love chocolate biscuits. And then I got a job in the chocolate biscuit factory and I was allowed to eat as many chocolate biscuits as I like. And now I just, if you show me another chocolate biscuit, then I'm, I'm just not going to be very happy. Did this ever happen to you when football became your your personal passion, but also your profession? 
It's a really good question. And it did in part. And also because I was working with the FA and I was in the press office, you were never off duty. You know, on a Saturday night, you might get a call at 10 o'clock at night and say, this newspaper's publishing this in the Sunday newspaper. We need to get our response out on the website immediately. Can you go to wherever you are and, and post it? In the in the summers, there were tournaments where you'd be away from home for seven or eight weeks. So it really was all-encompassing. I think the one element that saved me from feeling that way was because I worked on the FA Cup, and the England team. The Premier League was slightly different, and I used to go with my dad and watch Premier League games, and there I could just go and relax and, if you like, be incognito and have no <laughs> no work to do there. It was strange because sometimes I'd be at a game and I'd be watching the players playing, thinking, I'm going to meet up with them in about four hours at the England Hotel tonight because we've got a match on Wednesday. But I was just watching it as a fan. So I think just having that little bit, even though it was still football, having that little bit which was still enjoyment and which I could still be a part of as a fan, that kept that bit sacred for me, which was important. But it did come close to, to being switched off football because, as you say, it became a job, but it never quite got to that point. I'm very glad to hear it. and. At what point did the idea of writing stories, stories about things that hadn't actually happened, rather than making stories about the things that were happening in front of you, at what point did, did that idea start to take hold? Where, where did Jamie Johnson come from? Sometimes a conversation can can change your whole life. And so as you said, I, I'd been getting this... It, kind of encyclopedic knowledge of football stories in my head because every time I would interview a Ronaldo or a Gerard or a Beckham or a Rooney, really what I would do, a bit like you're doing and we're doing today, is I'd ask them about their story and how they became a footballer. So these were all just simmering away in my mind. And then they were activated one day when someone told me they'd tried to buy a birthday present for a kid who loved football, who'd gone to the bookshop to get them a football novel, and they couldn't find one. Um, there were short stories for young kids and there were autobiographies and biographies, but there weren't any football novels with really proper stories, properly characterized individuals and teams and um, ones that you could get your teeth stuck into in the bookshop. And this was just at the time that Harry Potter was changing the world of literature and entertainment. And in my simple, naive mind, I was like, well, that's fine stories about a kid trying to be a wizard no problem and that's gone relatively well <laughs> uh, football is popular from brazil to africa to asia north america you know let's think about all the kids that would like to read about what they're passionate about let's do a series of books about a kid trying to be a footballer and um, i'll be the next jk rowling my character jamie johnson will be the Harry Potter of soccer. I'll use all those stories that have been sitting in my mind that are real as the foundation stones. And I'll write the kind of book that I would have wanted to have read when I was at school that no one would have forced me to have read, that I would have galloped through because it was about what I loved. And did you have to learn new skills in order to do that? I'm assuming you couldn't just take your your journalistic toolbox and, and turn it into a a fiction story or could you well you're right I just didn't realize that I thought that <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know as you're aware what you do when you when you're submitting a story you I spent a year 
working on it in my spare time, taking this character of Jamie Johnson, being at school and developing his the life around him. So he's, he's living at home with his mum, his dad is not around, and you sense that there's a feeling of something missing in him. And maybe it's the football that he's trying to use to fill that gap and to get the attention of his dad. His granddad is around, and that's his hero and where his footballing legacy stems from. Um, he's got a best friend, a girl called Jacqueline, Jack for short, and they play football together. And she can get through to him because often he he has he gets in a tantrum and he can't really control his emotions very well. And even at school, he he finds it difficult to concentrate. And there's quite a lot of bullying. And she can she's very very brave, inspirational character, and she can get through to him. So I understood the world, and I spent a year writing it, and then you send it off to the publishers with a covering letter about yourself. So I really bigged myself up, and I said that I'd interviewed. Ronaldo and I'd been to two World Cups and we'd met the Queen and I really thought that would be enough. <laughs> it seems um, like it should be. Turns out, as as you pointed out, it's a slightly different skill to writing match reports <laughs> and it was rubbish. And I then went on to um, be rejected by every single publisher in the country for the next three years, which was my opportunity to learn those skills. And how did you learn those skills? Basically, trial and error. Um, yeah, uh, you know, just, I just kept failing, and I said to myself, "It's all right. I'll I'll just keep failing as long as each time I fail in a slightly better way." Yeah. So every time that I got rejected, I would always write back and say, "Can you tell me why you don't want this book? Why it's not good enough?" And it was really, really painful. And each time. I went through the same process of being angry and disappointed and not wanting to hear the answer to the question that I'd asked and really not wanting to exert myself again. You know, it's like running a marathon and then being told you've not finished it and you have to go back to the beginning and start again. But there was something, you know, that desire, and I think it probably stemmed from not thinking I was that good at writing when I was at school, this dream of having a book published with my name on it that could go all over the world that people could enjoy and I know how books can change people's lives and no one would ever be able to take it away from it it's such an amazing thing to produce something that you can hold in your hand and no one would ever be able to take that away from me and it was like this vision of something that I was desperate to achieve and it was also fueled by my stubbornness which I mentioned before in that I really wanted to prove those people wrong the more they said no the more I wanted to turn that no into a yes and so each time if they were kind enough to respond and explain why they were rejecting me. It would take me two or three days to get my head around it, but then I would look at it, and if there was something that they explained that I agreed with, that was obviously the key to unlocking the progress. For example, I thought that because I was writing for kids, Jamie Johnson should be perfect as a kind of role model. But in the kickoff, which was the first book, he's a 13-year-old boy. How many 13-year-old boys are perfect? <laughs> Very few. None of us are perfect, least of all 13-year-old boys. And, you know, and also how boring, you know, like for his mum to come home and him be like, hi, mum, I had a great day at school. I'm just going to go and do all my homework. No, in fact, let me make dinner first for you and then I'll go and do my homework and then we'll sit down and I'll tell you about my day at school. I don't know. It sounds pretty good to me, I have to say. Well, I've got teenage sons. It sounds great. Sounds good, but it's never going to happen. And trust me, I know from three years of rejections, it makes it makes a terrible story because there's nowhere for it to go. Um <laughs> 
and so these little uh, i'll never forget the phrase that one of the editors sent back to me was that jamie johnson needs to dip his toe in the water but it can't get wet in the sense that he's got to be naughty and try things out and be like a normal kid but not go so far that we don't sympathize with him and we don't get on his side and so that's where the development came from basically of just chucking lots of adversity at him lots of difficulty lots of obstacles all the things the challenges that he can't get through because then we want to support him and the real key to the books was not the football but do you care about the football because of what you know about his life if it was just one penalty followed by a free kick followed by a tackle who honestly is bothered? But if you know about everything that's going on in this kid's life, then you're invested when he steps on the pitch. So the idea was that he would be an absolutely normal kid, but then have an extraordinary potential when he stepped on the pitch. Would he be the hero, beat three players and smash one into the top corner? Or would he let himself down? and be his own worst enemy, and get sent off and ruin all his potential. And so it's always on that knife edge with him of which way it's going to go. Yes, and that that dedication and that determination and, and that stubbornness, it paid off, didn't it? Because someone eventually took Jamie Johnson on and the book turned into a series and the series became incredibly, incredibly popular. It's been made into a TV series. It's reaching these kids all over all over the world, I guess. And that that was your vision and it came true. So it was completely worth it. And now there's Unstoppable, which is a different kind of book, I think. And it tells the story of twins, Kane and Roxy. What made you want to tell their story? Did it come from the same place? Slightly different in that any success that Jamie Johnson has had really grew from visiting schools and meeting the bosses. They got to know about the books. They told me about their lives. And we talk really, when I go to a school, I sort of do a little introduction and then I say, right, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to know? Do you want to talk about football, writing, how books get turned into a TV show, meeting Ronaldo, how you get how you get a book published? And we just we just go from there. We kind of freestyle. And often the young people will tell me about their lives. Or maybe, maybe they won't even tell me about their lives, but maybe there'll be a kid asleep. And I'll I'll be a bit offended and the teacher will say, No, no, I need to explain to you. It's not it's nothing to do with what you're saying. This is the story of this young person's life at the moment and what they're going through. And that's why we have to give them a bit of space in school to let them just be themselves and feel secure. And so these stories started to emerge. And when I wasn't sure what I would do after Jamie Johnson, they started to sort of present themselves in my mind and characters started to form. And yes, this this idea of a family that has got a lot of challenges, but again, great potential within it. And I wanted to keep a sporting theme because I thought, well, that's that's what I'm known for. Let, let, let's keep the sport in there, but let's do it in a slightly different way. And so it's a story about Roxy and Kane, who, as you said, they're 14 years old and they're twins and they had used to be really, really close. But as they've grown up, they've become rivals, partly because each of them believes that they're going to be the next sporting superstar. Roxy is a tennis player. Kane is a footballer. But 
as I know from from speaking schools and also I work with Premier League clubs and other sporting clubs, the input required from parents and guardians for young people when they're trying to be elite sports stars is unbelievable at a young age in terms of time driving, equipment, investment. And to do that for one child is a major commitment. To do that for two, for this family, is impossible. They've only got one car, for example. The dad's just lost his job. The mum works in a care home. She's out all hours of the day trying to earn the little bit of money that they have. And they can't really do it for both kids. And so the family decide ultimately that they need to make a choice, which is one of the oldest stories ever told. Choosing between your children should never be done. But in this case, the family feel as though they need to do it. So it's some of the same themes, but as you say, a slightly older audience and it becomes, you described it as a thriller. Ultimately, both Roxy and Kane's lives are put in danger because the stakes are so high. Yeah, I I think... Dan, we should we should hear a bit of the book. I think we we really need to to learn a little bit more about Kane and Roxy, and the best way to do that is to hear from the book. So, if it's all right with you, I'm just going to pause for a moment um, while you grab the book and find a page, and then we'll be back to hear some of Unstoppable. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with our guest today, Dan Friedman. Dan, you're going to read for us now from your latest book, Unstoppable. Before you do, would you mind just telling us a little bit about where we are in the story so far so our listeners can put themselves in the picture? Sure. So as we were discussing, the family have taken a very, very difficult decision of choosing one of the twins to support in their sporting ambitions and they've chosen Roxy the tennis player the dad believes that he can ensure that she achieves success whereas football is a bit more of a lottery and that means that both of them are under different kinds of hardship at the moment Roxy actually feels a bit guilty that she's been chosen and separated from her twin in that way Kane feels abandoned and you know why don't you care about me why are you putting everything into Roxy. And so within that sense of family hostility and tensions, they're just about to sit down for dinner. It was 7.15pm and Samantha Campbell had just finished laying the table for dinner. She went back to the cooker and smelled the food. As she did so, she saw the picture frame on the windowsill. She'd taken the family photo out of it and asked Roxy to show it to Kane the other night when they'd had an argument. She'd hoped that looking at the photo of themselves might have triggered a reaction in the kids. The frame was still empty. She found herself wondering at what point it had all changed. She remembered the twins doing everything together as toddlers, how they used to search and long for one another when they were separated. They even had that special twin ability connection knowing what the other was thinking. It was real. They truly loved each other, and if either of them was in any kind of pain, the other had been able to feel it, too. That was how close they'd been. She was sure that it was still there, that underneath everything, they still had that special bond. But somewhere along the line, things had gone wrong. How? Why? They were the questions that tormented her. She dipped the wooden spoon into the sauce and tasted it. Not quite as good as her mother's, but not bad at all. 
The flavours brought back memories of her own childhood and the relationship she'd had with her brother. She couldn't remember any rivalry. She had worshipped the ground that Anthony had walked on, and he had been her protector, always making sure that she was safe and happy. It's ready, she called, filling each of the bowls with rice and putting the huge saucepan of fish on the table for people to dig in and help themselves. Saltfish and cuckoo was something that they all enjoyed, and this Friday evening she hoped it would please one of the clan in particular. She had still not been able to save up the money for Cain's birthday present, and for that each day she felt a stinging guilt deep inside. At least he'd stopped talking about needing to be in Southampton at the weekend. Making choices like who the car should be used for carved her heart in two. Soon the table was full of all four Campbells, busily munching their way through the dish, which she knew was as close as she was going to get to them, saying, Thanks, Mum, for spending all that time preparing this lovely meal. We really appreciate it. She allowed herself a moment of pride. Yes, they had their problems, but so did everyone. They were a unit, she told herself. They stuck together, and underneath the difficulties, they all loved each other. She had a loyal husband doing his best at a really difficult time. She knew he didn't always know how to show it in the right way, but he cared about his family more than anything. He was a good man, and together they had the two most beautiful children in the world. She was a lucky woman. Can I propose a toast? She said, raising her glass into the air. To us. To the Campbells. Roxy lifted her glass, and Samantha noticed to her surprise that Cain did too. He had a strange smile on his face, one that she'd not seen before. And good luck to Roxy for Sunday, added Daryl. The journey is about to begin. Samantha once again looked at Cain. Even though they were toasting Roxy, he was still smiling as though he knew something they didn't. You take that stupid cap off while we're having dinner, Daryl suddenly said to Cain. Get a job, mate, said Cain. Then I'll start taking orders from you. Stop it, both of you. Just be quiet, said Samantha in a loud, clear voice. We're not arguing tonight. I've had enough. That's it. For a second, the table went silent. Both Kane and Daryl lowered their heads. Now, she continued, tonight we're going to have a calm and happy dinner like a normal family, okay? No one answered back. She was just about to return to her meal when her phone rang. You lot carry on before it gets cold, she said, moving towards the sofa to take the call. Hello? She said. Hello, yeah? Yes. I see. Samantha was listening intently, staring at Kane. She held on to the phone tightly to stop herself from dropping it. Yes, of course, she said, trying to keep her voice as even as possible. We'll see you then. She put the phone back down and retook her seat at the table. For a few seconds, she didn't say anything. She just listened to the sound of clinking cutlery. Who was it? asked Daryl finally. It was Mrs Buckland, said Samantha, looking up at her son. Kane set the fire alarm off at school on Wednesday. She wants to see us first thing on Monday morning. I think they're going to exclude him. Thanks, Dan. I love 
how powerfully that that short scene really gets across the whole family dynamic there there's there's so much bubbling under the surface and and mum's clearly trying to hold the whole thing together and I also love the way it shows how in the book you take care to tell the story from different perspectives. So you you give Roxy a voice, you give Kane a voice, but you, you give mum a voice as well. Was that really important to you to to get everyone's viewpoint on this this family situation rather than just tell one or two people's stories? Yeah, and I think not just in this book, really. That's something that we all try to learn to do in life, isn't it? Yeah someone may be short with us or rude to us and we think what a horrible person in Kane and Roxy's case Samantha the mum might not be around and they might think you know where is she why can't my mum be around like other people's mum is or what you know why why is dad so offhand and and aggressive and then you switch it round and you see it from the other other person's point of view a bit like we were talking about in a school environment, if I see someone, you know, who's not paying attention when I'm there doing a talk and I'm yeah. like, why aren't you listening to my talk? And then you find out that they're a carer for their younger sister and they've been up all night and they've got just no- nothing left in the tank. And so, yes, I wanted to see it from each of their perspectives. And I think even in the case of as we've just heard, Kane's Kane's led off the fire alarm, and during the book, he gets up to some very naughty things. And I think it's an interesting experiment, almost, to see if we can accept that what he's done is wrong, but also understand where it's come from. And the same with Roxy; she does very naughty things, and we've just talked about the parents. So to see it from everyone's point of view just opens our eyes a bit more. Yes, and that's that's the joy and the excitement and and the power i guess of, of being a writer you can do that can't you you can you can step into somebody else's skin and see the the story through their eyes and then tell it from somebody else's perspective as well and hopefully you end up with a a rounded view of what's going on yeah i was going to say it's it, it's kind of liberating as well to to leave your own life and go and spend time in your from your character's perspective um but it's also a way of developing empathy which again is something I think we're all trying to do and we're going to need to do more and more over the coming coming time when people are trying to readjust to a different kind of reality and the pressures that are on us all. So I think it's a way of leaving your own experience but also connecting with other people which heightens your understanding of your own experience. Definitely. There's something else as well, though, isn't there, about being a writer in that as well as sharing other people's perspective, it does also allow you to experiment with situations that might be quite unusual or or exceptional. So Kane and Roxy, for example, are both exceptionally talented sports people to a level that, that most of us are never going to come close to reaching. So why as a a writer did you choose to give them such a a rare ability? And what did that bring to the story? I think it raises the stakes and raises the possibilities. And also, yeah, it it, it intensifies it. And I think it's, it's also good to have a goal that we can all understand is something that the kids would really aspire to. And then it also makes the choice between them that much more difficult so if they were both kind of 
average at what they did, choosing between them wouldn't wouldn't seem such an intense moment. But in the case of them choosing Roxy and and Kane feeling as though he's been abandoned, we understand what an intense decision that was for the parents. That makes a lot of sense. I thought it was probably also worth saying that you you do cover some some quite dark subjects in the book, in particular gang culture and knife crime, in fact. What made you want to explore this in a story? Yeah, I mean, the book took about five years to write. As you say, there there are some really sensitive and important discussion points that, that come up out of it, and I wanted to try and get them right. Yeah. I think it was just the way I write is, is from a realistic point of view in terms of what is happening in the world and what I've seen and, and what, what people are talking about and experiencing. And so, for example, in terms of knife crime and gangs, it was really just thinking about, again, going back to those experiences at schools and talking to to coaches and teachers and parents and students. You've got a very, very angry young man there in Kane, and he feels like he's not being seen and heard and supported at home. So as an author, you're kind of sitting there and you're thinking, so what's going to happen to him? What's going to come down the line for him? And sadly, those are the kind of people that gangs prey upon. And when you're feeling like you have no power, and when you're feeling like no one is listening and to supporting you, if someone comes along and tries to seem as though they're putting those things in your hands, you might grab onto them. Even if you know the voice in your head is saying this is not a good idea and you shouldn't do this, you might feel as though you want to do it. And maybe it is even a form of self-harm because if you don't feel loved, then maybe you don't love yourself and protect your own life like you should. Certainly, we know these things are happening. And I think it's realistic for it to come into Kane's life. Then the question is, how's he going to deal with it? Dan, this is such an important thing to to have written about and, and absolutely to talk about. And I really hope that all our listeners carry on talking about this with each other, with their parents, with their teacher. And I think the, the story that you have written is a really great springboard to do that. I could talk about this all day, but we are running out of time. And I did just want to remind the teachers and parents listening that we do produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of the podcast you can download it from plazoom.com and the details are in the episode notes so while everyone's just making a note of that dan i'm just going to pause the recording again for a moment and then we'll come back and perhaps i might be able to prod you for a couple of insider writing tips before we leave Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with today's guest, Dan Friedman, author of the Jamie Johnson series of books and the fantastic standalone novel, Unstoppable. Now, Dan, it may well be that we have young people listening to us right now who, like you were when you were their age, just aren't getting into reading at the moment or they're feeling a bit less than confident about their writing. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I think the first thing, both in terms of reading and writing, which we touched upon before, is focus on what you're interested in and what you love. And when I talk about football, it's not like I want everyone to love football. It's just that I happen to love football and that gave me an opportunity to read and therefore an inspiration to write and a goal that I was aiming towards. But whatever it is you are into, use that as use that passion 
as the fuel to develop your reading and writing. And your writing can just be an expression of how much you love that particular subject or sport or hobby or whatever it may be. The other thing that I do is always use reality, people that I've met, stories that I've heard, because that way it gives me a confidence when I start writing about it, because you've got a foundation of something real to begin with. Of course, the beauty and luxury of fiction is you don't then have to stick to exactly how it was in real life. You can exaggerate it, invert it, or turn it on its head in order to suit the story. But if you're starting with reality, then that gives you confidence. Certainly it does for me. Third thing is don't think that you have to create perfection first time round. Don't think that writers sit down and they are touched by inspiration and they just produce excellence. It's more like writing is not a moment, it's a process. Think of it like if you've seen a fishing net and whatever's in your head is like that fishing net and then you empty it out and you see and if there's if there's a couple of bits you want to keep great and then the rest you can just throw back and those couple of ideas that aren't so bad that can be what you start with and then you're looking to develop it and shine it from then on and it might take a while as you said as i said earlier unstoppable took me 5 years you might not want to work on something for 5 years but it's that sense that it's not an immediate thing and that's okay it isn't an immediate thing for any of us and actually, the one of the best bits of writing advice I ever had, I ended up studying English at university. And I wasn't getting good enough marks that I wanted. I went to see the lecturer. And I said, what's, what's going on here? Well, you know, I, I think what I'm doing is really good. Why, why don't you? And he said to me, you're always trying to find an answer. You're always trying to conclude. In this case, we were writing about Shakespeare. He said, do you think Shakespeare would still be read and discussed centuries after it had been written if you could conclude and find a truth and know the know the end and the answer to the point that's being discussed no it's the fact that we can't and we need to discuss it that is the beauty and the excellence of it and so don't always think you have to find the answers for your characters we were just talking about Cain and Roxy and the the gangs and the knife culture that comes into the stories. I don't have the answers. If we had the answers, then we wouldn't still have this problem, which sadly is something that needs to be discussed. But I'm hoping that it can prompt a discussion. If I went into a classroom and said, let's talk about knife crime, I'm not sure how far we'd get. But if we said, what would you say to Cain? Or why do you think Roxy is so down on herself? What would you say to her? If you could write them a letter or ask them a question, or if you were Kane or Roxy, how would you feel? Then I think you can get some really interesting discussions. So don't always feel as though you have to take the reader to the answer, but sometimes you can just offer up a subject for discussion. That's really thought-provoking stuff. I'll be really interested if any of our listeners take that on and, and turn it into pieces of writing of their own. And if they want to share those with us, that would be fantastic. That really is us nearly out of time, but it would be remiss of me, Dan Friedman, if I were not to ask you what is next on the writing horizon for Dan Friedman. 
I've got some things that I'm working on, um, but as as <laughs> as I've just explained, I tend to it tends to take a lot of time, and it tends to start <laughs> off really rubbish, and I get rejected by everyone, and that's part of the process. <laughs> and also, um, I always admired football clubs when they just announce they've signed a player rather than getting involved in transfer gossip and saying, "Oh, we tried to sign that." So I kind of like to talk about stuff when I've when it's good enough and when I've achieved it. So maybe we can have another chat in a little while, and I can say, "Oh, that's what I was working on at that time," and now. I'm ready to tell the world about it. That's a deal. I will definitely take you up on that. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Dan. It's been absolutely brilliant. And as I say, so much to think about, so much to talk about. Just fantastic. And to all our listeners, thank you too. We'll be back soon with another author in your classroom. Don't miss it. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible. So please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.